Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Wiley Connected podcast. I'm Dwayne Poza, a partner here at Wiley Rhine. Today, we're going to talk about blockchain with Kevin Werbach. Kevin is a professor of legal studies and business ethics at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's an expert on business policy and emerging technologies such as blockchain and an influential figure with extensive experience in internet and communications law. Uh, among other things, he served on the Obama administration's presidential transition team in 2008. He worked on internet policy at the FCC in the 1990s and has lots of other experience. His new book is called The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. It's available now. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Dwayne. Delighted to be here. So I wanted to dive right in on some central themes of your book. What do you think are uh, some of the key value propositions of blockchain, and what do you mean when you talk about trust architecture? Yeah, so one of the central points of the book is that we need to understand blockchain at a deep level. People have gotten fixated on the prices of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and all the investment speculation. And while that's a, an interesting phenomenon and, and matters if you're investing, it doesn't really help you appreciate what's going on. And so the first point is that the basic value of blockchain is that it creates a new structure of trust. It creates an environment where multiple parties who don't fully trust each other can nonetheless exchange value, which essentially means they can agree about the state of a common set of records, who has what and how things move back and forth on this decentralized ledger without having any central actor that they have to trust in. Uh, so that's a fundamental change in the structure of these relationships. It gets used for a wide variety of things. The first big application was Bitcoin, which was using this new trust structure for money, mm -hmm. for having a currency that doesn't require either a government to issue the currency or a bank to hold the accounts. But it's actually much broader than that. And the whole idea of trust infrastructure is that many of the advocates of cryptocurrencies and blockchain talk about it as a trustless technology. They say, well, it used to be we had to trust people, we had to trust governments, now we don't have to trust anything. And that's actually wrong. That's actually a misunderstanding of what this technology does. It doesn't eliminate trust because trust is essential. If you want to uh, get people to engage in transactions and feel confident, they need to trust. What blockchain does is changes the structure of that trust, what I call the architecture of trust. And I go through in the book different traditional architectures of trust, and what they all have in common is there's something that you have to trust. And what blockchain does is it distributes that so you don't have to trust any particular thing, but that essentially pushes back the trust to another level. You can be confident because of the cryptography on the blockchain that a resource went from point A to point B. But you don't know who point A is, you don't know who point B is, or maybe point A is you, but you don't know who point B is. And there's all sorts of other layers of trust uh, and layers uh, involved in that system that actually require some trust in order to make the system as a whole trustworthy. So a lot of the book is spent unpacking those and connecting them up with law, regulation, and governance. One thing that I think relates to trust, or, or you can tell me, is what happens when things go wrong? So, you know, you talk about how one advantage of blockchain is that you can be confident, for example, if you're sending somebody a Bitcoin, that there's no double counting and it's verified. The flip side is if your Bitcoin gets stolen, just to take this example, you might not get it back. Does that create a problem in terms of, you know, trust 
for a consumer or a user perspective in the, the underlying technology? Absolutely. And that, that's a good example of the kind of thing that, that I was talking about. So the, the Bitcoin example is that because blockchain creates an immutable ledger, so at least in theory, once something's recorded, it can't be changed. And it works on the basis of the bearer instruments, because if you had to trust someone else to basically maintain, to hold your, your value, then you'd have to trust them. So basically, you hold it yourself, like cash. And that's great, except what happens if someone steals your cryptographic private key, which is basically what identifies who can access that resource, whether it's uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or something else. They're you once they steal it. And so one response is, well, tough. One response is, well, you know, that was your problem because you didn't uh, maintain good enough control over your keys. I don't think that's a workable solution. I don't think most people and most companies are going to accept that if we expect this technology to be used significantly at scale. And it gets back to what you said, which is dispute resolution. The idea of these blockchain structures using what are called smart contracts that are automatically executed and enforced contracts uh, on these networks is that you do all the work at the front end. You specify exactly what the transaction is, exactly what the relationship is. You put it into code. And then it just executes, and no one can stop it, and no one can reverse it. The problem is what happens if something goes wrong? What happens if something gets stolen? What happens if there's a fraud? What happens if there's a misunderstanding? The parties actually didn't put what they intended in the code. The reality is when things go wrong, people lose money, there are disputes, there's going to be demand for some mechanism to resolve those disputes. And natively, blockchain technology doesn't facilitate that, again, because it's all focused on coding things in at the front end. So ultimately what we need are hybrids, are mechanisms that use the structures, for example, the legal system, which are pretty good at dispute resolution, although slow and inefficient and nationally based and so forth. But how can we embed the useful aspects of the legal system, for example, where needed into this blockchain system? And then when we don't need it, when things can just be efficiently executed on the network, then we use the technology itself. Do you think that our current system of dispute resolution is up to that task? Or put another way, uh, the folks who are working on developing you know, smart contracts or other sorts of blockchain applications are thinking effectively about ways to, to integrate the self-executing code on, on top of our current system of dispute resolution. There's some really exciting experimentation. And again, I talk some about it in the book. But absolutely, there is room to innovate here. There is room to innovate using the existing legal system. So for example, dividing up between a legal contract and a, an algorithmic uh, computer-operated smart contract, where basically they're connected together. So the parts of the agreement that need humans to resolve fuzziness, uh, we can say, all right, here's a contract, and this contract will resolve it. But then that contract says, well, everything else just executes in the smart contract. And the smart contract, which is just software code, has a cryptographic hash, a kind of a fingerprint that says, for these situations, it gets kicked out to this human contract, or maybe there's some sort of arbitration system. So there's a lot of work going on uh, on those kinds of systems, as well as on decentralized systems. Maybe we can use uh, what's called a decentralized oracle. We can have a community of people, perhaps people with expertise, like uh, specialized arbitrators, or perhaps even just a group of people who are willing to do this, uh, incentivized using cryptographic tokens, so potentially with an economic model and a kind of game theoretic model to 
have confidence that the results will be accurate and that people won't you know, try to cheat or abuse the system and uh, do some of the things that we historically have done with centralized legal systems and centralized juries, for example. We can do some of that on the blockchain in these innovative new ways. We're still very early. Again, there, there's really interesting experiments going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we've seen so far is, is most of the systems that are at scale, that have, or at least that have significant financial investment in them, haven't even anticipated those problems. So there was a famous incident two years ago where a decentralized crowdfunding system called the DAO was hacked, uh, money was stolen, and, and there was nothing in the technology that could differentiate between a thief and a legitimate transaction. So they had to literally blow up the entire blockchain network and split it into to two forks in order to resolve that. And there have been a number of other smaller but still serious cases like that where literally millions of dollars have gotten lost because the systems didn't build in any of those mechanisms. So absolutely, um, law can contribute to this, our traditional legal system. There's lots of mechanisms about international arbitration and so forth that get used in the real world to deal with these kind of complex global systems. But we need to actually build those in and uh, try out these experiments and fine-tune them to get them to work. Right. It's interesting you mentioned arbitration. That's an interesting analogy to the way you could set up some sort of – consensus mechanism to resolve these kinds of disputes. Well, and you can literally embed arbitration. So one uh, function that most blockchain systems, including Bitcoin, have is what's called multi-sig. So uh, you know, there's these smart contracts. They require a cryptographic key to sign to authorize the transaction. But the contract can say, for this transaction to go through, or for this step of the transaction to go through, you don't need just one signature. You need any two of three signatures, uh, or maybe you need any nine of uh, what would be 17 signatures. Right, you, can, right. you can set it up, how, or, or 12 of 16, however you want to set it up. You can define a, a set of keys, and what you can do then is, in the simple example, the two of three example, mm-hmm. uh, you've got two counterparties, let's say. They're doing some sort of contractual business transaction. They each get a key. And then the third key goes to an arbitrator, or maybe it goes to an arbitration association that will give it to a particular arbitrator in a dispute. If the parties agree, no problem. They just both sign the transaction. If they disagree, then literally the arbitrator's decision controls because the arbitrator will will put his or her key with one side or the other. So we can actually embed traditional international arbitration um, using online mechanisms into these systems. Or we can decentralize the arbitration where it's not just an arbitrator, mm-hmm. but it's a network of people potentially who are serving that arbitration function. So I want to take a, a step back a little bit. Um, I know you spent a lot of time working on internet policy um, in the 90s as the World Wide Web was taking off, the internet and e-commerce was taking off. Do you think we can analogize the trajectory of blockchain adoption and the stages it's going through now? to where we were with the internet and the web in the 90s? Do you, do you see similarities there? Absolutely. And it's, it's a fun parlor game that a lot of people in this space engage in. There definitely are similarities in that there is this fascinating new technology that, that emerges kind of bottom up. It, it wasn't a technology that came from you know, the world's incumbents or that the government started by standardizing. It came from the hackers, even more so in the case of blockchain. And it took off and suddenly captured the imagination, and it's incredibly broad. It's not just something that can be used for particular use cases. This is something that can be used all across financial services, all across um, other kinds of business relationships, supply chains, energy, healthcare, almost everywhere you think of, blockchain has potential. 
And there was this bubble. So we had the dot-com bubble in the late 90s, and we had you know, last year this cryptocurrency bubble, which burst. And you know, if you look back to the history, I think it gives you some insights into what's going to happen. You always have to be a little bit careful because the timescales are not identical. For one thing, we have the Internet now. Blockchain would never have taken off without the Internet to begin with and without you – know, I talk about this in the book – peer-to-peer technology, which underlies – this whole system was something that, uh, again, came out of the internet experience. So it's a lot easier and things can move faster. But blockchain in some ways has gone much more quickly from being sort of a curiosity to being something where there's billions and billions of dollars at stake and the world's major companies and governments are involved. On the other hand, it's going to take longer. So if you look at blockchain today, it depends where you start the clock. You could start it with the Bitcoin white paper in late 2008. But but really, there were at least five years, six years where Bitcoin was around as a sort of interesting, small curiosity. It, it really wasn't until 2013, 2014 that this started to, to scale out in the, in the level of uh, involvement and awareness. We're still really early, and lots of aspects of the technology are very immature. I've talked about some of these, for example, decentralized arbitration and oracle mechanisms that I think, you know, broadly speaking, things like that about decentralized governance will be important to the full maturation of this technology. They're just very, very early. And even for just the basic consensus mechanisms, the, the basic integrity and scalability of these networks – we have Bitcoin. It works for what it does, but it's not terribly scalable. It's not really usable for widespread transactions. So there's still a lot of early development work figuring out, for example, can you do consensus? Can you do this decentralized verification without centralized trust and not use the inefficient system that Bitcoin has called proof of work? which has all sorts of negative externalities in terms of energy usage and in terms of concentration and so-called miners in certain pools, many of which are in China. So there's a lot of these questions that still haven't been answered. And I suspect it will actually take longer in the blockchain case to fully mature in those areas uh, than it did in the case of the Internet, where you, know, you look from the dot-com boom to um, the whole Web 2.0 revolution taking off and leading to social media and so forth. That was really only a few more years. Well, one thing I think you're seeing is that as these um, blockchain-based and particularly cryptocurrency-based projects have taken off, they're increasingly interacting with the legal system and the, the regulatory system. And uh, a key issue for our listeners is always going to be the, the future of regulation in this space. Uh, I recently came to Wiley from the Federal Trade Commission, where I worked on blockchain issues. That agency has spent a good amount of time thinking about the right approach to blockchain and to cryptocurrencies more generally. Other agencies have as well. I'm interested in your views. Where do you think regulation is headed in this space? And, and also, where should it be headed? Mm -hmm. So first point is it's a global phenomenon. And, and again, it's a more global environment than it was 20-odd years ago when I was in the Clinton administration. We could say, here's the United States' approach to e-commerce. The rest of the world would basically have to largely fall in line or, or at least respond to what we were doing because the vast majority of the activity was in the U.S. Now that's not entirely true. The U.S. is still a, a leader and a very, very important center um, because it's such a center of both technology and entrepreneurial activity as well as financial activity. But there's a tremendous amount, a much higher percentage happening other places in the world. So that, that's one issue that uh, we're going to see different approaches to regulation. And, and there are multiple legitimate approaches to regulation. And 
the market and uh, the world will we'll see which ones are, are more effective and more successful and, and how the different environments differ. It may well be that the uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency market in the U.S. will be very different than, in, for example, some parts of Asia. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But specifically, there's how regulation is going. There's a whole set of questions here. Many of them are in some ways, straightforward questions. So uh, you talked about the Federal Trade Commission. There's plenty of fraud going on here. And you know there are technical differences. But if someone promises, I'm going to do something and buy my token, and this is what you'll get, and then they abscond with the money, that's the sort of thing that the FTC is, is very familiar and very good at dealing with. You know, there may be some implementation and enforcement issues about how you find the person and so forth, but it's a familiar issue. Similarly, there's been a lot of work on securities regulation uh, around uh, what are called ICOs, initial coin offerings, where companies have offered these tokens to, to raise funds. And there's some hard questions about how exactly to map the securities regulatory scheme in the U.S. to this activity. But again, it's a fairly straightforward problem. We, you know, The SEC and the other financial regulators like the CFTC have a lot of experience at dealing with new technologies and new kinds of schemes that are somewhat different but raise the same basic kinds of public policy issues. So I, I think actually I talk to a lot of people in the cryptocurrency world who say, oh, regulators don't get it. They're clueless. They can't possibly understand this. They want to stop it. They want to control it. And that's not what I've seen, at least in this country. What I've seen is a lot of regulatory agencies spending a lot of energy, as you said, thinking hard about these problems. There, there are some problems that are, that are hard problems to get right. They don't want to just do something knee-jerk right away. Um, things are changing very fast, so you don't want to regulate too soon. Uh, you don't want to deregulate too soon. You don't want to regulate too soon because the market's going to evolve. Um, trying to figure out what to do, talking with industry, reaching out and, and trying to develop rules and approaches that are sustainable. So, yes, there's some uncertainty, and that's a cost. But I think that's really necessary, ultimately, to get to a set of frameworks that are workable. And, and again, people say to me, oh, all the entrepreneurs are going to leave the U.S. because we don't have a super pro-cryptocurrency and pro-blockchain regulatory environment. That's not what I'm seeing. I mean, there, you know, there are some companies that are incorporating in the Cayman Islands or other places. But it's going to take a lot to say we're going to leave you know, both the, the incredible innovation ecosystem in the U.S. and the incredible financial engine in the U.S. because, well, Malta has a, a slightly more you know, friendly regulatory environment that, that's saying, please come locate here. At the margins, that's going to happen, but I think there's a long, we're a long way off before that makes a significant dent. Sure. Uh, do you think that there are open lines of communication with regulators and with innovators in this space? I think the, the regulators are trying. It's hard. And, and this was what I found when I was a regular at the FCC. You know, I spent a lot of time getting on planes and flying to Silicon Valley and saying, let's, you know, let's go out for sushi, <laughs> you know, because you know, I'm a regular person. I'm, you know, yes, I work for the FCC, but I'm not here to try to kill you. I'm here to try to understand you. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of, oh, actually, you don't have three heads. Right. Um, and I and I can understand that. I mean, it's, it's entrepreneurs. It's not their job to be spending all of their time in Washington speaking the language of regulators. But no, I, I've seen very aggressive efforts um, for something as as new and uh, challenging as this by regulators, at least in the U.S., to say, "Come talk to us." Now, again, it's imperfect, and there's a need for various mechanisms to do that. I, I run a workshop where we invite 
representatives from many of the regulators, both in the U.S. and many countries around the world, and invite in some of the key legal experts uh, and technology providers in this space to facilitate conversations. And, and that seems to be very, very valuable to the participants. So there's need for, for more of these kinds of mechanisms. But I, you know, I, I think it's really hard not to say that, that regulators have said the door is open to at least talk to us. And I think it's really a matter of, you know, understandably, technology companies, and especially people who come out of this cryptocurrency world who are just na you know, naturally skeptical of government, it, it's a hard thing to say, just come talk to us. That doesn't mean we're, we're trying to find out so we can shut you down. They have to sort of take a step forward as well. I think the signal has been put out effectively. It's an ongoing process. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's, again, it's about trust. And I think we'll see a confidence-building process. The, the last thing I'll say is more and more when I talk to the, the people that are doing startups and companies in the space, what they're saying is we want the regulators to do more to go after the bad guys. There are some real bad actors here. There are clear fraudsters and people who are clearly uh, manipulating the system and abusing the system. Go after them. Because if I know that you're going to police the bad actors and not just try and shut everything down, that will give me confidence when you say to me, well, you, know, you need to think about anti-money laundering rules, for example. You need to really adapt your technology to deal with the legal requirements. I'm much more willing to do that if I see that you're going to draw a distinction between people who are trying to get it right, even though it's imperfect, and those who clearly aren't. You know, in other industries, there's even another layer of governance, which is, you know, self-regulatory bodies or associations that essentially enforce rules among their members um, to combat a lot of these things, fraud and the like. H have you seen a lot of those efforts or is it still early days in the blockchain space? And um, do you think that would be effective? Too many. So there, there are probably a, a, at least a dozen different self-regulatory efforts. Not all of them are trying to be a, a full-blown SRO, formally recognized self-regulatory organization. Um, but, but this is something that, that you know, a number of groups within different pieces of this uh, cryptocurrency space and blockchain space have, have identified, and it resonates with them. Uh, none of them, I think, have really gotten the, the sort of breadth of buy-in and they've not gotten to the point where they can really confidently say to regulators, look, we got this. You can deputize us. And, and many of them are trying. So I, I think it's, it's early. I think this is not going to be a universal solution because there are different pieces to this industry. I can certainly see some aspects of it where you know, a self-regulatory organization will have a lot of value. The, the challenge is just it's global. It's on a decentralized network. So even a functional SRO, there, there's some things they just can't police. And so it's, it's not an environment, for example, like, like securities where you, know, you have the rule that everyone needs to be a registered broker-dealer, and, and then you, know, you have uh, FINRA, which can regulate them. There's still going to be a bigger space here where there's a piece in the market that just is not going to listen to any kind of self-regulatory body. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's definitely a piece of the puzzle. It's definitely a healthy development and something that I think should be encouraged. But again, it's, it's early to say that we've identified either particular markets, let, let alone specific entities that have reached the point where they might actually be able to take on that mantle. Right. So we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, 
we've talked, um, you know, we touched on the legal issues surrounding a, a lot of what's going on in blockchain, the initial coin offerings, you know, securities questions and, and the like. Uh, but but looking at, you know, a couple of years down the line as these things get sorted out and, you know, as the fraud issue continues to be sorted out, what do you think is next for blockchain based projects in order to build trust on the consumer side or the you know, company enterprise side or build trust, you know, among any government regulators that need buy-in to it? What, what do you think is coming next? Yeah, well, first thing is recognizing that that's the issue. And I think we're starting to see more of that. It's, it's one thing that it's healthy in some ways to have this kind of crypto winter that we've had where, you know, the bubble is ending. There's there's fallout from that, that, that good projects have trouble getting funding and people become unreasonably skeptical of the technology. That's somewhat inevitable, but I, I think you're starting to see more of a recognition that it's not just if you build it, they'll come, that, that actually it takes more to be trustworthy than just to show that the technology actually enforces transactions in, in the way that you want it to. So I think we're hearing more and more people in the blockchain world say this. We're also realizing that it's not just a challenge for the kind of purely decentralized kind of anarchic system. A lot of the enterprise blockchain systems, which use what's called permission distributed ledger technology, people think, oh, well, they're, they're not doing anything new. They, they still have a trust issue, which is really a governance issue. Again, even though the, the platforms they're using are decentralized, to convince all the participants to use this system when many of them are competitors actually requires a lot of work and sweat on the hard problems of governance. So I think that's still an unsolved set of problems, and there's no magical solution to it. Again, it's, it's just a lot of working through based on, for example, what's worked in internet governance, what's worked in standards bodies, what's worked in some other examples, and, and, and trying to get them right. So that, that's one piece is the, you know, the governance work and, and you know, maturing also on the decentralized side. Some of these kind of experiments I talked about is important. Mm -hmm. And then there's a real front-end issue. There, there's a real issue that these systems are not accessible to ordinary people. They're not the sort of thing that regular individuals can use and understand. Some of that's going to involve hiding the complexity. You, most people don't want to open up a wallet and translate between different coins. Uh, sure. They just want to see an application and have that be done at the back end. Um, There's a similar thing on the enterprise side where, again, the, the barriers to entry are still too high. We need to get to the point where um, this just doesn't require a huge level of expertise if you just want to spin something up or you want to actually use an application. So I, I think that's going to be a, a big area where, again, frankly, we're starting to see or I'm starting to see more projects saying, let's put our head down and just work on this as opposed to thinking, how do we get 50 million users next week because it's going to be worth billions of dollars. Right. I think it's actually healthy in a way to say, well, it's a little bit more time to actually make this all more polished uh, and more accessible, and then that's going to pay off down the road. Right. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. The book, again, is The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. What's next for you in this space? Are you continuing to uh, host your workshop, and, and where can folks find more about your thinking on all these issues? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter at KWERB, K-W-E-R-B. Uh, there's a, a page for the book uh, at trusttheblockchain.net that's got some additional information, but you can get it wherever uh, wherever you buy books. I, I post on various other places like Medium and LinkedIn and so forth. 
And yeah, I'm going to be working on this for a very long time, perhaps even the rest <laughs> of my career in, in one way or another. These questions of governance are really important. And that's, yeah. that's something I'm going to focus on um, more in addition to the, the regulatory work and workshop that I talked about. Uh, and, you know, just, just going out trying to explain this to people. What, what I've found is even now there, there still is a huge segment of people, including business leaders and, and, and people who are smart and, and knowledgeable, who still say to me, I just don't get it. Like, I just don't understand what's going on in this blockchain world. And so I'm spending a lot of time uh, you know, trying to explain both the benefits and the dangers, uh, because I think that's necessary. I think there's lots of people. I, I find this even at my own university. I have many colleagues in our finance department, operations and management and so forth, who could really contribute, but but they just don't see the connections yet. So I, I think uh, I'm going to be spending a lot of time trying to make those connections for people and improve the level of discourse in the area. Great. Well, we'll continue to follow you and uh, hear what you have to say. Thanks again for uh, coming on to the podcast, Kevin. Have a great day. Thank you so much as well.